Well, hi everyone, we're embarking on our journey through the Gospel of Mark today, and so uh, please find your way in your Bible or device to Mark chapter one, verse two. Uh, we covered all of verse one last week, and, and we're really gonna try to apply ourselves today and get through uh, verses two through verses eight. And so I'd like to encourage you to open your Bible, to take notes, to mark it up. Uh, some people don't like to write in their Bibles, but I, I kinda like to think of mine more like a life workbook, uh, where you kinda jot down insights and dates and the margins and challenges so that your Bible becomes kind of like a living, breathing companion as you go through your life. And you can actually look back and trace the work of God, you know, through learnings and the scriptures. And, and so there's this old adage that says a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to a person who is not. And uh, so I'd encourage you to mark up your Bible. And, and in Mark's typical straightforward style today, uh, which we discussed last week, there's, there's no fanfare. By, by verse two, we're just right into the ministry of Jesus. There's no birth narrative in Mark, no babe in a manger, no catching the, the, the Christmas spirit. There's no angels singing, no shepherds bowing, no cattle lowing, no little drummer boy tapping out a beat in the corner. Mark just gets straight to the action of Jesus' ministry. And he can hardly kind of contain himself to start painting the picture of the greatest person who ever walked the earth. But first, uh, he's gonna introduce us to one of the supporting cast members. Now, remember, in the first century, the most powerful man in the world occupied a throne in Rome. His name was Caesar Augustus, and he was called the King of Kings. He was a picture of power. He was passionately devoted to building his own kingdom, and there would be no other kingdom like it. The Roman Empire, at its, at its peak under this Caesar, extended as far north as England, as far east as Asia, down south into Africa. It covered something like three million square miles, bigger than the mainland of the United States. There had never been a kingdom like this. And into that kingdom, Jesus introduced a new kingdom, and it's totally different. Into that vision of greatness, Jesus begins to redefine greatness. Into a Caesar Augustus world stumbles John the Baptist. And Jesus would later ironically say these words. He said, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So, so Jesus' kingdom was upside down to Rome, whose least they're gonna be the greatest. In other kingdoms, you see power always lies at the top, but not in Jesus' kingdom. It's topsy-turvy. And so today we're gonna to see how John the Baptist welcomed Jesus to, to the world of ministry. And today, at the beginning of a, a brand new school year, a brand new ministry year, a brand new work year for some of you, my question is, how will you welcome Jesus into your life again this year? Here's my big idea. Welcoming Jesus into your life involves rearranging your expectations. Because his kingdom is not like anything you've ever experienced. He's not a, a domineering king. He's a servant king to whom you've given your allegiance. And so today, I'd like to frame, this, frame it this way. Three expectation adjustments as you welcome Jesus in. Here's the first one from Mark chapter one. Jesus isn't looking for perfect people. So, so look at verses two and three. He says it this way, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, the next two words in verse four are John appeared. 
And so John comes and he's going to break the mold and he's going to change our expectations. John the Baptist was a, a desert dweller, a voice crying in the wilderness. Now, by contrast, in terms of starting Gospels, Luke's Gospel starts in the holy temple of the holy city, Jerusalem. John starts his Gospel with the heavenly council of God, the Trinity all gathered before the creation began. Matthew begins his Gospel with a genealogy tracing Jesus' the royal bloodline back to King David. But Mark, Mark is different. Mark takes us to the wilderness. Mark takes us to the desert, and the desert invoked all kinds of imagery for this original audience. Remember the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites in the Old Testament. The wilderness meant struggle, it meant sin, it meant wandering, it meant difficulty and idolatry. The, the, the wilderness is not where you want to be. And then, then he just drops this character on us out of the blue. John the Baptist. John appeared. And so, so Mark has no interest in telling us anything about John other than that he was the forerunner to Jesus. That's all that matters to Mark. He gives us no information on his origin, on his parents, on his birth, on his ministry. And so we have to turn to other sources to find all that. And so we're going to. Now, remember, there had been no prophets from God for three or 400 years. It's called the intertestamental period between when the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins. And God had been silent and the people were waiting. And so Mark is very careful to tie this story together. The story of salvation that God has been writing since the beginning, as it's written in Isaiah, he says, that there, there's the, this tie-in. He says, well, now it's happening. But first, John appeared. John's the first prophet in over three centuries. But, but who was John the Baptist? Well, he came from a good and godly family. His dad was named Zechariah. He was the basic equivalent of a, a pastor in a small town. He was likely bivocational. He worked a part-time job. He led a very small congregation in a very small town. His family was likely poor. His mother, uh, uh, sorry, John's mother was a, also a devout woman. She was named Elizabeth. Uh, she really loved the Lord. And, and so this hardworking, rural couple devoted their lives to God. But what they really wanted was a child. And so they prayed for many years, God, would you please entrust to us a child? We'd love to have a baby. Well, that prayer was not answered for many years. But one day when it came Zechariah's turn to, to, as a priest to go and burn incense in the temple, the angel Gabriel himself appeared and promised a son. Zechariah couldn't believe it, and, and he paused actually a little too long. He had a moment of questioning God, and so he was cursed. And the, curse, the, the curse was not being able to speak the whole time that his wife was pregnant. Now, for a clergyman, this was the worst curse imaginable. But Elizabeth was pregnant with John. And during her pregnancy, she gets a visit from Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus. And the Bible says that John leapt in his mother's womb, a sign of things to come. You see, from the start, this eccentric and excitable little boy was totally devoted to Jesus. Now, we don't know anything about his growing up years, but I'm guessing he was kind of a, a weird kid, <laughs> kind of a, a recluse maybe. Like he, he would wander off for long periods of time and kids would probably pick on him a little bit. He was the one who, was, you know, who, who wore the saggy long johns under his gym shorts. You know? No, no, no one of them would have imagined that he was gonna be the forerunner to the Messiah. God, God's economy is so upside down. In the world's view of greatness, it's the pretty people, it's the powerful people, it's the wealthy people who make the rules, who set the pace. It's the, the rich men north of Richmond, as the viral song says. They're the ones in control. But in God's kingdom, 
that there's an elevated role for the poor and for the ugly and for the wounded. Paul says in Corinthians that God chose the weak things in the world to shame the strong. And so John was the unlikeliest of characters to play this role in an epic story of salvation. And yet here he is, front and center, making the way for Jesus. And if you're in the room today and you think Christianity isn't for you, like you think you've wandered too far away, God could never take in someone like you. Or, or maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you, you really never stepped, stepped up into your calling because you're insecure about what you have to offer. Maybe you, you've, you've run across some kooks who say that they're Christians and you're like, well, if that's it, I don't want any part of it. Listen, you'll have that. You know why? Because Jesus has thrown the doors of his kingdom open wide to anyone and everyone who will come, which means... No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, Jesus says, come and follow me. You too can be a disciple. You too can be a follower, an apprentice of Jesus because he isn't looking for perfect people. Now, speaking of imperfect people, if you go down to to verse six and check out the description of John, listen how it describes him in verse six. It says, now John was clothed with camel's hair And he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So John ate bugs and honey, and he wore a camel suit. And we get no other details. And so we say, well, why these details, Mark? Well, the original readers would have picked up on these clues in a way that we don't. They would have understood that John, as he's described here, is a prophet in the form of Elijah. For example, if I were to give you some uh, uh, clues about outfits, you would probably pick up on some too, just culturally. Like if I said, you know, stovepipe hat and beard, you would probably think Abraham Lincoln. More recently, if I said, you know, dress made out of cuts of meat, you'd probably think Lady Gaga. Oh, you know, how far we've come. So in the same way, when Mark says camel's hair and leather belt, people would think Elijah, which would explain John's success. I mean, he was drawing huge crowds, but people may have been trekking to the desert because they hear that it was Elijah's second coming. After all, the closing words of the Old Testament promised the coming of Elijah the prophet. Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so we have this promise of another Elijah. And then in in verse 2 and 3, it tells us what the message of this prophet will be. It says, his message will be, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, this wording gives us some clues into the nature of Jesus' ministry. See, from the outset, we the readers are directed not to a philosophy or a theological system. We're directed not to metaphysics or mysticism, not to ethical rules or values. We're directed to something practical and transforming. He calls it here a path, a way, a way of salvation made possible by God. Did you know that before Christianity was called Christianity, it was talked about, um, we talked about this kind of a few weeks ago when I was referencing Antioch. It said before our movement was called Christianity, it was simply called the way. Which means there was a time before Christians were known, uh, before they were known for their opinions, when they were simply known for the beautiful way that they lived their lives. So John was sent to show the way, to prepare the way. He showed that it would be different than the way of the world. It would be simple. It would be gritty. It would be a little quirky at times. But it was a way of love. And it was a way of humility. And it was a way of acceptance. It was a way of 
holiness. It was a way of discipline. And so, so again, no matter who you are or what you've done, the question becomes, are you preparing to walk in the way of Jesus? Are you following him, not just in his teachings, but in his lifestyle, the way that he walked? He walked in community, the, the way that he walked with others, the way that he lived in rhythm between intense work and regular retreat to connect with God, the way that, that he forgave, the way that he made time for people even when he was busy. Are you following Jesus in the way that you live? Dallas Willard said it this way. He said, the goal of discipleship is not just to be like Jesus. The goal of discipleship is to be like Jesus if he were you, with your family, with your community, your nine to five, your circumstances, your strengths, and your limitations. And this way is available for everyone. You don't have to be perfect. Here's the second expectation adjustment, that Jesus desires confession, not triumph. I want you to look down into verse four of Mark one. It says, John appeared, there's those words, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so we see these two words here, confession and repentance. And confession and repentance are always the starting place for a great work of God. And so I want to remind you what a, what a, what a bombshell this little passage of Scripture is. We, we just talked about what, what John's message was according to you know, the Isaiah prophecy. Prepare the way of the Lord. This was the message that was leading everyone to confess and repent and get baptized. Well, why was the message such a bombshell? Well, the key there is the last word from this quote in Isaiah 40, where he said, someday the Lord himself will come to Jerusalem. Go read Isaiah 40 sometime. Someday the Lord himself will come to Jerusalem and show the nation his glory, and a messenger will call out and prepare the way before him. That's the prophecy. And so Mark here is identifying the messenger of the promised Messiah as John the Baptist, which means that Mark is also identifying the Lord who was promised, who is coming in person in the form of a Messiah, as promised in Isaiah 40, as Jesus. The last word is the key. He says, prepare the way of the Lord. He's referring to Jesus, but this word Lord is the word Yahweh. It's the personal covenantal name that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush for himself. It's the person and personal name of God that the Jews considered so holy that they couldn't even speak it. They didn't even write it down. That's why if you're reading through the Bible, through the Old Testament, you'll see sometimes a bunch of consonants pushed together. Y-H-W-H, it's pronounced Yahweh, but that's why. The name was considered so holy that they weren't even allowed to write it down in, in, in its fullness. So Mark is saying that Yahweh of Israel the creator God of the universe, the rightful ruler and judge of all the earth, has come to earth in the form of Jesus Christ. Prepare the way of the Lord, that is Jesus. And listen, if God is coming to earth, the proper posture for us who are welcoming him is a posture of repentance and confession. And so it says people were leaving Jerusalem and, and Judea and they were going out to meet him in the wilderness. Again, another important word. The, the word wilderness can also be translated desert. And it's very significant, not just historically, but practically. Because think about what a desert is. A desert is a place that can't sustain life. It's a place of thorns. Nothing grows in a desert. It's a place of thirst. All the wells are dry. There's no bread out there because you can't grow wheat. You can't grow things. There's no water. It's a place of terrible loneliness because you can't support community. You can't support life. 
And so why is it important that John is preaching in the wilderness and people have to travel all the way out to the wilderness to get baptized? You know why? Because one of the enduring themes of the Bible is that people meet God in the wilderness. Where did Moses meet God in the burning bush? The wilderness. Where did Jacob wrestle with God face to face? The wilderness. Where did Israel meet God? During 40 years of wandering, in the wilderness, they followed a cloud by day, the fire by night. They got to know his movements and his interactions in the wilderness wanderings. And you know why the wilderness is a good place to meet God? Because it's a place where you can't stay alive without the intervention of God. All the wells are dry. And, and you have to have the water of God out of the rock. All the bread goes moldy. You have to have the manna of God from heaven. See, out in the wilderness, Israel learned what we all have to learn. And that's that God is not an add-on. He's not a vitamin supplement. He is the main course. Nothing's possible without him. Uh, apart from the saving intervention of God, you have no hope in this life. And here's what that means for us. You meet God in the wilderness when you realize that all those things in which you've placed your hope, all the areas you experience triumph, aren't enough to satisfy the deep longing in your soul. And when you finally meet the true king, you don't meet him by bringing all of your accolades, all of your trophies and triumphs and laying them at his feet and saying, look, God, look how lucky you are to have me. And it's also not, by the way, when you decide that you're going to, you know, get a little bit religious, you know, for the sake of your kids. You know, we, well, we need to raise our kids in church. No, no, no. It's when something happens that causes you to look at the very foundations of your life and realize in that moment, I'm going to die without God. My career isn't doing it for me, and it's not my family, it's not my looks, and it's not my friends, and it's not my achievements, and it's not my money. It's none of these things. It's not a great husband, it's not a great wife, it's not great kids. None of these things are ever, ever, ever going to actually satisfy me fully. Every single one of those wells will run dry except for the water of God. Every single bread will go bad except for the manna of God. And when you realize that without God in my life, I'm dead, when and only when you experience that, usually it's in the wilderness, then you can meet the king. The proper response is not pride and it's not arrogance or triumph. It's repentance and confession because you are in the presence of the God of the universe. And so John would baptize people. Now before John, there had been other variations of washings and absolutions and immersions the Jews understood that they needed to, to wash before going in to worship God, and so they would wash their hands. It was a way of saying, I need to be cleansed of my sin. I have certain uncleanness in my life. And so it was a kind of ritual of confession and purification of sin. There was also another level. In those days, the Gentiles, who maybe wanted to go into the temple or the taber tabernacle to worship God, they not only had to wash their hands, they, they had to pour water over their whole bodies, they had to immerse themselves because they were Gentiles, which meant they were particularly unclean. But interestingly, up until now, all of those ritual cleansing, Jews and Gentiles, were always done by yourself. The Gentiles did self-immersion. The Jews did self-cleansing. And so for the first time in history, John the Baptist says, no, I have to baptize you, all of you, not, not just Gentiles, Jews, everybody. Immerse yourself all the way under the water. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter if you're a Bible scholar or a prostitute. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. You're going to have to receive your fitness for the king from the hand of another. And so I'm going to have to baptize you. And I'll do it with water, but later, he says, Jesus is going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Spirit. 
The, the point of the matter is that you can't save yourself. Your resume, your highlight reel, your triumphs aren't going to get you in. Confession and repentance are your only shot. And so when you come to welcome Jesus into your life in 2023, you probably have to adjust some of your expectations. Realize that he's not looking for perfect people. Realize that he desires confession and not triumph. Here's number three. Jesus measures greatness by humility. I want you to look at verse seven. It says, and he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to, to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One is coming, he says, who is mightier than I. John knew that this story was not about John. It was a story about Jesus. If this was a company, John would be the assistant, not the president. If it was a football team, he was the guard, not the quarterback. It's not about John. It's about humbly getting people ready to meet Jesus. And if you think that posture was easy for John, think again. John's popularity was surging. Think about being John. People were coming from far and wide to see John. Think about how tempting that would be. He's been poor his whole life, simple, humble, living in the woods. He was a rural guy. He was not a big deal. Now he's filling Madison Square Garden every night. And his message night after night faithfully was, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. There's one who is coming. He's much greater than I. See, John pinned all his hopes and his dreams in the life of another. The, the prayer of his father, Zechariah, predicted it. Can you imagine Zechariah? He's a, he's a minister who's been mute for nine months. Think of all the things that you'd have stored up to say. And finally, Zechariah's curse is over and he gets to open his mouth. And what does he do? He starts to prophesy about his son and not for his son's great glory, but that his son would introduce the world to another. He says these words, and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways. We should all pray such prayers for our children not for their own greatness, but that, but that God, may they humbly point people to Jesus. John says, I'm unworthy to tie the straps of the sandals of the one who's coming. I wanna make sure that this analogy doesn't get lost on our modern ears. See, in that day, the roads weren't paved. There were no nice concrete sidewalks to walk on. They were muddy, they were well-worn paths, there was dirt and dust. They were journeyed upon by animals, so you've got feces and urine and garbage, and it was gross. How many of you don't like feet to begin with? I'm right there, feet are nasty. You know, even clean feet in my mind. Like, your best foot day is still a bad foot day, okay? Now imagine those feet in sandals, not sandals with socks like the boomer dad look. Just open-toed sandals, and they're walking on the road through the mud and through the feces and through the urine, and in those days, an apprentice to a rabbi would serve their teacher in every possible way. They would even follow them to the bathroom. Yet the one thing not even they would do is to untie the sandals or to touch the feet, even of their master. That was a job for the lowest of slaves. And so John is saying here, I'm not even worthy, worthy of that job. And John wasn't just trying to get out of it either. He's showing true humility. He's saying, Jesus is so much greater than me that I'm not worthy to do the job of the lowliest slave for Jesus. 
And so for John, in the moment of, of, of his life that's offering him fame and power and pleasure and prestige, he's saying, no, 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 no. It's about Jesus. He's coming. Don't get worked up about me. I'm just the opening act. The great one is almost here. Now, listen, I'm throwing this in for free because it's not part of our text today, but do you want to hear something amazing? A little later in the gospel, one of his final gatherings with his disciples, Jesus himself gets down on his knees. You remember it. After dinner in the upper room, remember what he does? He unties the sandals of his disciples to wash their feet, including Judas, by the way. The thing that not even the lowliest of servants would do for their master, the ultimate master did for his servants. Jesus is the most humble of all. And so if you worship Jesus, you worship the most humble person who ever lived. Every one of us then can take our cue, not just from Jesus, but from John. See, this, the story of the world is Jesus' story. It's not ours. Jesus is the main character. We all have just a tiny bit role. It's amazing to have you know, these portable cameras that we have these days in our pockets at all times. It also means that a lot of pictures are getting taken, but it also means that people appear in the backgrounds of lots of pictures that you know, weren't even supposed to be in there. I took a picture of my wife this summer and I posted it on social media and another family member who will remain nameless was in the total background of the picture, very distant, even a little blurry. And this person came to me and said, oh my gosh, that's a terrible picture of me. You need to take it down. And I was like, good news, it's not a picture of you. <laughs> they, they, they were like zooming in and zooming in and zooming in on, uh, you know, right past the picture of Kim so that they could see themselves in the background. I'm like, yes, you're in the picture, but it's not a picture of you. You're just an extra in this particular picture. It's a great shot of Kim, though. And so we make the same mistake all the time in this life. John got it right. See, the story of our lives is the story of Jesus. He's the star. We're the backup singers. And like John, our whole job is to point to Jesus, to shine a light on Jesus, to make much of Jesus. But it takes humility. Christians, it takes humility. When did we become so belligerent? When did we become so rude, so self-exalting, so belittling to others? I just remind us today, it's really hard to reach people who think we hate them. We need to tell a better story both with our words and with our lives. And John captures it here. It's all about Jesus. And, and we're just here to point you to him. And here's why in verse eight, John references the true power, the true greatness of Jesus. He says, I can work on the outside. I can baptize you with water. But the one who's coming, he's gonna work on the inside. He's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is a messianic reference to the outpouring of the Spirit, which was to be a sign of the last days. It's the fulfillment of the new covenant promise of Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, where he says, you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you. That's quite a promise. He's saying you're gonna be totally clean from all the junk, from all the grime, from all the filth that has built up in your life and in your soul. But how? This is what John's referring to. Up until now, it had been external changes. It had been behavior modification. But John says, Baptism, this external washing, it's good, but that's not ultimately what you need. What you really need is what Jesus is bringing with him. Look what that cleansing looks like in Ezekiel 36, 26. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. 
and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. This is a prophecy of the new covenant of the last days, the final epoch of history. And it's being ushered in and it's coming with unbelievable supernatural spiritual power and ultimate victory over sin and death. And the promise of the Holy Spirit is the promise that this greatness is available through Jesus to all who will come to him. But it's a greatness that is unlike what you're used to. It's a greatness cloaked in humility. And so you see God's kingdom, it has come among us, but it has come in the most unexpected of ways. And so in order to get your mind and your heart around it, you're probably gonna need to adjust your expectations. It comes with things like confession and repentance and humility. And those things can sound like such a downer, like in this world of hyper-positivity and positive self-talk and all these, these words sound so negative. And sometimes people start painting God like, you know, he's some guy up there going, you, you better not do this or you're going to hell or whatever. And some Christians fall into this trap of describing their Christian life like it's some kind of drudgery. And God is painted like he's an angry old man who just needs a nap. And maybe that's what you learned growing up. But when you actually start to investigate Christianity, and as Mark begins to unfold before us, you're gonna discover, wait a minute, the way of Christ may not be exactly what I expected at first glance, but it's actually about joy, it's actually about freedom. I mean, could you imagine if you talked about other relationships, like some people talk about their relationship with God, can you imagine if I asked you how your marriage was and you were like, well, you know, I gave my vows, and so I guess I'm in this thing for the long haul, but man, every moment with that woman just sucks the life out of me, you know, but I'm a man of my word, and so, you know, for the rest of my long, long, long life, I'm gonna hang in there and just wait it out until death mercifully takes me. Like, is anybody going, you know, sign me up for that? You know, I, I want a marriage like that for me. No, but I'm telling you, that's what some people have done with their relationship with God. They shuffle around. Oh, I'm plugging away. I read my Bible, but it's hard. And it's a real sacrifice. And it's always a struggle. But I'm enduring until death, till I get swept away to the sweet by and by. That is not the picture in the scriptures. The humility, the confession, the repentance. It's not about putting me down. It's about lifting us up. God is not glorified in our reluctant, embittered obedience to his rules. He is glorified when we submit to his will and his ways with joy because we know that he's not our taskmaster. He's our liberator. He's showing us the way to true freedom. And so, yeah, humility doesn't sound sexy sometimes. And certainly you can choose the opposite path, like go out there and, you know, beat your chest and, and, and be this prideful and self-reliant person steamrolling your way through life. I'm sure you're going to probably make some money. You're probably going to find some acclaim along the way, but there's a better way that's not going to leave you with deep regrets and devoid of a soul when you lay your head on the pillow at night. And so Christ is going, I'm offering you a new spirit, a new heart, a new perspective, a new mind, a new covenant, a new life. He says, I'm going to baptize you with a spirit inside you who will guide you, who will help you and encourage you and convict you. And in your everyday life, like in the areas of your, of your money and your approach to sex and your habits and your relationships and your work, he says, I'm gonna give you a blueprint to live by that has your joy in mind. And so don't just begrudgingly slog along through this thing until you die. Rearrange your expectations to the ways of Jesus. It may be upside down, but it is the best way.
It is the way of joy. And so here we stand in the fall of 2023, the precipice of a brand new year. What does it look like for you to welcome Jesus into your life again this year? John welcomed him onto the scene with incredible humility and grace. You know, last week we introduced the four themes of Mark that, that we're going to be dancing with through this journey. One of them is what we called ordinary heroes. There are these minor characters through Mark's gospel who show us what true faith in Jesus looks like. Well, John the Baptist is the first of many of these ordinary heroes. And so as our next step today, I want to again encourage you to visit whoisgrace.com slash Mark and the many resources that are there. One of the things that you'll see at that website is some current steps that you can take this week to stay engaged in Mark, and we're going to keep that updated. But if you scroll down a little further, you'll see four pictures, and, and, and you'll see these four themes. And each one of them has a discipleship question underneath associated with it. We're going to be changing those up from time to time as we go. But the discipleship prompt right now under the ordinary heroes theme just ask this question what is my next small step of obedience today and that's the question i'd like you to ask and answer this week in honor of this story of john the baptist welcoming jesus in honor of these expectation adjustments that we probably need to make now notice it doesn't need to be a big step it doesn't need to be a grand step it doesn't need to be a glorious step just the next small step of obedience we're going to take a moment now, just allow the Holy Spirit right now to assist us in answering that question. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.